Father in heaven, we pray to you as those forgiven of our sins, our many sins, our detestable sins. We are blind and you opened our eyes and we are dead and you made us alive and we were filthy and you washed us. We were guilty and you have justified us. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so scripture continues, and such were some of you, and so such were some of us. But we were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So give us wisdom through our time together, Father, to know how we might more faithfully live in this world in light of the tragic normalization of homosexual sin. Give us more clarity and greater conviction and Christ-like compassion for those who struggle with same-sex attraction. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I thought I would start out by answering the question, why are we here today? Why are we here today? Well, there are many good things to be doing on a Saturday morning, and this is one of them. I promise you this is an important thing to address. We're here today because homosexual marriage is a hot topic. If we would have done this seminar in 1980, I'm not sure we would have had 130 people register. I'm not sure. Well, I wouldn't have been here. I wasn't born yet. So, uh, But here we are, and homosexuality is no longer in the shadows, but it's uh, in celebration, in full view as the culture around us and the world around us has decided that it's not just okay, but it is a good thing and to be celebrated. And the debate about homosexuality is live right now. So it's a hot issue. The proposal for homosexual marriage is something like a chemical reaction from a mixture of a number of ideas, ideas about gender, marriage, and sexuality, even God and human nature. Certainly, uh, Certainly those doctrines and others. It's a mixture of ideas that have great consequences. And so it's also a consequential issue. On one side of the debate are those who desire to expand the definition of marriage to include same-sex couples. And on the other side of those who say to include something like same-sex couples is to redefine the thing entirely. Men and women were made to fit together. There's a biological reality there. And you cannot marry two of the same thing. So to say that homosexual marriage is a reality or to expand it to include same-sex couples is to redefine it at the basic core of its meaning. And you lose the principle that would govern marital norms such as age difference, number of parties or permanence once you detach it from biological reality. Marriage has already slipped far from its ideal, of course, in our, our culture and we have not faithfully upheld it and honored it as we should. But other consequences related to religious liberty are hot as well. So it's a hot issue. You know, styles of genes come and go. Some things uh, come and go and they don't uh, change you. This issue uh, may settle down and it will change all of us. It will change what it means to live in the world we live in. It will change the world that our children grow up in. So it's a consequential issue. But isn't it also a personal issue? a deeply personal issue. On my first day of college at Moody Bible Institute in 1999, I made two new friends, Nate Collins, a friend of mine, and we'll call him Joe Savage, a second friend. Since those years back in the early 2000s, both have gone public with their attraction to the same sex, but not in the same way. So me and Nate went to graduate school together and over coffee in 2006, he shared with me that... uh, He had this ongoing struggle with same-sex attraction and he was sharing with people and purpose to glorify God and fight this sin and and help others. He's been very productive. He's doing his PhD in this area and he started a ministry and does some traveling and speaking. Joseph, my other friend, took a different course. Around the same time, Joseph announced that he was gay, identified himself as gay, and he's insisted that this is part of God's design for him. I believe that he's left the faith. Both of these guys have to answer and had to answer important and difficult, difficult and even painful, we should say, questions. What are these feelings? Where did they come from? And what do they mean? And what do I do with them? 
This is not a theoretical matter. I think of Nate and Joseph and a few others, several others that are my friends. Names and faces come to mind for you as well, friends, family, maybe children. And for this reason, the question about the meaning of these desires are not just for people who have them, but they are for all of us. And so it's also a universal issue, not just for public figures, it's for all of us. You'll need to counsel somebody. You may need to manage inordinate desires that you find in yourself. It may be that you're here with same-sex attraction. You haven't shared that with somebody, or perhaps you have. You're here to grow. Nearly all of us in some time will have to answer to someone, a neighbor, a boss, or a family member who asked the question that had historically been reserved for TV interviews, right? We're all on the hot seat now. We all have to be theologians. And if we're honest, we'd say this is an often fumbled issue. It's either neglected or it's abused. It's either made light of or at the same time treated as a sin common only to monsters. So that if somebody were to hear the way we talk, they might think that if they were to share of their same-sex attractions that we would punch them in the face. And I've actually heard that be the case. A guy grows up, he goes to church, has friends, he's in a healthy environment, but he, he really thinks that everyone around him would just crush him and send him out. What a shame. And it's, often, it's actually a genuinely confusing issue, which is part of the reason it's fumbled as well. It is a genuinely confusing issue. Many issues converge on this one, the doctrines of sin, God, scripture, salvation, interpretive issues, how the Bible fits together, hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible and apply it in context. And then cultural issues, the church's relationship with the state, issues of evangelism, how to address our friends and neighbors, it requires the greatest care, clarity, finesse, and love. And it's also confusing because of the things that people say, like Fred Phelps and his gang of spiritual thugs from Westboro Baptist Church, who have by no decision of ours become something like the spokespeople for Christians, but they are not. And finally, and above all, we are here because this is a gospel issue. It really is a gospel issue. It is not another kind of issue that Christians disagree on. It is clear from Scripture, and it is significantly consequential The souls of people are at stake in how we handle this, and they handle this. So with all this in mind, we have a great opportunity to mature as the people of God and our clarity from Scripture, our conviction to embrace the cost of discipleship, and our gospel-directed compassion for fellow sinners. So I'm excited to be here. hope you are. Now, a few points about how we'll spend our time today. Well, this thing will unfold in three sessions. So we'll spend about an hour on homosexual marriage in the Bible. We'll answer the question, what has God said about gender, marriage, sexuality, and homosexuality? Second session, after about a five-minute break, so give you a heads up, it'll be short, will be homosexual marriage in the times. We'll look around us to consider where it is that we're living, what God has said about the age that we're in, and what's happening out there. I'll try to do a good job of summarizing a number of the flashpoints that have happened over the last 40 years or so to just make sure we're clear about the moment we're inside. We'll answer a number of questions there as well. And the last session will be homosexual marriage in the church where we'll consider our responsibility and our response. And what, that, what, what all this entails, what it means for us to live faithfully in a world where homosexual homosexuality is normalized and homosexual marriage is celebrated and how this can be a catalyst for a more faithful and a more pure church and perhaps even a clearer witness and certainly a more faithful love for those who struggle with same-sex attraction in the church. In each of these sections, we'll, we'll do foundation stuff, so I'll talk for a half an hour or so on foundations and I'll tear through a number of questions. Tear through a number of questions. And I do want to thank you for your questions. I emailed about 60 or so people from DSC and said, what would you want to come to a seminar like this and have answered? What's going on in your mind? What's rolling around in your heart? Tell me your stories. And I had a chance to talk on the phone with folks, a few email exchanges, and a, a number of uh, visits out around the town uh, just this last week. It was a real pleasure. So thanks for all your questions. Over a hundred of them, by the way. So a lot of them overlap, of course, but I kind of put them together. We'll cover most of the basis. But for this reason, we won't have an open Q&A. We won't take questions during, during the lectures. But uh, I hope it'll serve you still. At the conclusion, I will um, do a blog roundup with some links and reference some key resources. 
And along those lines, uh, you don't need to take notes. You didn't get paper when you came in. It's not even going to be much for PowerPoint except for the questions that I'm answering. On the other side of the seminar, I won't promise it right away, but maybe within a couple weeks, I'll have the manuscript for this lecture, these set of lectures available with footnotes and links to videos and articles and books, and it should be a great service to you, I hope. So it's a total package you're getting today. Very good. All right, well, let's get after it. Session one. Session one, homosexual marriage and the Bible. Homosexual marriage and the Bible. Well, in 2005, Brian McLaren, Brian McLaren was named Time Magazine, by Time Magazine, of one of America's 25 most influential evangelicals. And whatever some of us might have thought of him at that time, back then, there were plenty of self-identifying evangelical Christians who were buying his books and taking his lead. He's a very astute thinker and uh, leader. Some of you may recall that in 2006, Brian McClare declared a moratorium on the church on talking about homosexuality. And here was his take on the matter. Frankly, many of us don't know what to think about homosexuality. We've heard all the sides, but no position has yet won our confidence. That alienates us from both the liberals and the conservatives who think to know exactly what we should think. Even if we are convinced that all homosexual behavior is always sinful, we still want to treat gay and lesbian people with more dignity, gentleness, and respect than our colleagues do. If we think that there may actually be a legitimate context for some homosexual relationships, we know that the biblical arguments are nuanced and multi-layered, and the pastoral ramifications are staggeringly complex. We aren't sure if we know where the lines are to be drawn, nor do we know how to enforce with fairness whatever lines are drawn. Perhaps we need a five-year moratorium on making pronouncements. And in the meantime, we'll practice prayerful Christian dialogue, listening respectfully, disagreeing agreeably. When decisions need to be made, they'll be admittedly provisional. We'll keep our ears attuned to scholars in biblical studies, theology, ethics, psychology, genetics, sociology, and related fields. Then, in five years, if we have clarity, we'll speak. And if not, we'll set another five years for ongoing reflection. After all, many important issues in church history took centuries to figure out. Maybe this moratorium would help us resist the winds of doctrine blowing furiously from the left and the right so we can patiently wait for the wind of the Spirit to set our course. Well, this kind of thing resonates with a lot of people. A lot of people who want to distance themselves from some of the harder edges of Christianity or movements within evangelicalism that have miscalculated their words, their tone, and their political alliances in years past. But is this a faithful biblical corrective? A five-year moratorium on the subject to study various fields and listen and think and reflect on where we might land. Brian was happy to say he was confused then, but before five years were over, if I'm not mistaken, he was actually officiating weddings. He had certainly come out as pro-gay marriage. More recently, Matthew Vines published a video to YouTube that has, since 2005, 12, received 600,000 hits. Now, that's not a lot for some videos, right? I mean, you probably see a video every day that's up in the millions. But it's a lot for a video that's an hour long and about Leviticus and Romans 1, right? It's a lot for a lecture, 600,000 hits. He struck a nerve, and that's why he's been in the New York Times quoted there. He's a self-identifying Christian, was a student at Harvard, amazed there at the openness toward homosexuality, took two years off to study the subject and master it, and then delivered this lecture at his uh, church in Kansas City area and put it on the internet. He says things like this, You're taking a few verses out of context and extracting them from them an absolute condemnation that was never intended, he says to us. But you are also striking at the very core of another human being and gutting them of their sense of dignity and self-worth. You are reinforcing the message that gay people have heard for centuries. You will always be alone. You come from a family, but you'll never form one of your own. You are uniquely unworthy of loving and being loved by another person and all because you're different, because you're gay. Now, for anyone to feel those things would be tragic. And the gospel is the answer as we'll see. And of course, there are a host of other resources out there. There's a book by a guy named Justin Lee, Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gay versus Christians Debate. 
the author walks you through his journey and how he knew the scripture said this but had these desires and then maybe scripture doesn't say this and he walks you through each text, mentions homosexuality and kind of changes your mind on it and shows you how he came to see that this text really meant something different. So what does the Bible say? That's the question. What does the Bible actually say? Because that's what we want to believe. Yes, the Bible is complicated and sin can be complicated, but is the subject of the sinfulness of homosexuality a complicated subject? Is this difficult, as McLaren says? We don't keep all the commands in Leviticus. Why should we keep the command against homosexuality? Why didn't Jesus make a single mention of it? Then there's Paul. Was he really thinking about and talking about committed homosexual relationships? So the goal in this session is to think God's thoughts after him. To have his thoughts become our thoughts. To let the word of God shape our sexual ethic. We'll consider that question from scripture and then drill around through a dozen or so questions. What is God's view of homosexuality? That's the question we're answering now. If it's not clear to us, it it won't be clear to our children without our thoughtful leadership. And I'm leaning on the work of Robert Gagnon. A guy published a book maybe 15 years ago about that thick, and it's awesome. It's just, I haven't read the whole thing. Ron's working through it. Um, But he works through every text and deals with objections. And I'm indebted to him. Now, Nathan Vines and Justin Lee, the guys I mentioned, when they, work, when they work through their material, they say things like, there are nine texts that mention homosexuality. Two of them are like this, three of them are like this, and two of them are like this, and we're going to look at each of them. They just look at the texts that mention homosexuality specifically. And though those texts, in my view, are clear enough on their own in my reading, we have to consider every text within the story of the Bible, and so our study of the relevant scriptures will start in creation and move across the Bible to new creation, which is the way to do, to do this kind of work. So I'm going to read texts. You're going to, I want you to hear, hear God's word. I'll, uh, I'll help drive us along with questions from time to time, and then I'll read some summary statements that I've pulled together that are relevant to the subject. Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and 2, 18 through 25, the word of God says, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 2, 18 and following, And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And here we get kind of a close-up of the story of God's creation of humankind. Even in Eden, something wasn't right without a female. Note that, man. It wasn't good that you were alone. So God parades various animals before Adam, not a suitable helper. And now convinced of his need, God puts him to sleep and makes a woman out of his side. And when Adam wakes up, he sings a poem. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So what do we learn from Genesis 1 and 2? Well, God made two kinds of human beings. They come in two formats. Male and female. Gender is a reality. It's tied to biology. It's a part of God's good creation and a display of his wisdom. Male and female go together. They complete a sexual spectrum. God made two kinds of people. Each have distinct parts and those parts fit together in a distinct way. They have visible biological complementarity so that they are incomplete without each other. There are specific sexual organs designed that go together. When they come together, they multiply. These parts go together and our sexuality has a purpose to unite man and woman to bring new life into the world. Sex is a unifying act, one flesh does more than procreation. It's meant to unite us in partnership and wed our hearts together. 
And we are born longing to be united. And some of us would have the gift of singleness and the Lord may not bless all of us with a spouse. But according to his pattern here, it was his design and creation that men and women would be united together in every way in a comprehensive union of body and soul. Marriage unites man and woman in a comprehensive, exclusive, and permanent union. What happens here is marriage. A comprehensive, exclusive, and permanent union. Leave father and mother, cleave together. It's about more than procreation, but it is oriented toward children. There are many kinds of relationships in the world. Friendships start and end with relative degrees of closeness and commitment. Marriage is distinct from other relationships for its complementarity, its exclusivity, and its permanence. And this is clear from nature itself. Marriage is for partnership, pleasure, and procreation. Gender, sexuality, and marriage are real, they are good, and they are beautiful, according to God's wisdom. Gifts to us. And God is unspeakably good toward humankind in these gifts. And Adam's poem is a sign that he knew it for what it was. And he rejoiced in the blessing that God had given to him in a wife. So this is how it is. Or perhaps we could say how it was. None of us know this perfection. And those who experience same-sex attraction wonder if they must live in a parallel universe. All we have to do is turn the page for some help to explain what happened in Genesis 3. We come to the second plot movement of scripture, which we might call the fall. Genesis 3, 1 through 24, and I'll read several verses along the path of this chapter. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. So we have a new character introduced to the story. He said to the woman, it's a speaking serpent, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And from here we read a deadly exchange. A talking serpent is attacking God's word and he's attacking marriage. Eve is tempted to doubt the word of God and trust the serpent instead. In short, God said eat and die. The serpent says eat and live. Which will she choose? Verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Naked and ashamed. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? Of course he knew. And the man said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God asks for an account of what happened. Adam blames his wife. Eve blames the serpent. And so the first marriage is on the rocks already. And how sad is that? To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Adam is cursed with trouble in his work and the promise that he'll sweat to work the ground, and ultimately he'll return to that ground as dust. Verse 24, he drove the man out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden. So that was a pretty stressful day. Pretty stressful day. Genesis 3 teaches us a few things. Adam's sin changed everything. Our problems are not because we came off the line bad. Our problems are not because we came off the line bad, having their origin in our maker. We went bad. There are things about us that are broken and bent and bad because we aren't what we were made to be. And if you don't struggle with same-sex attraction, you have desires that would suck you into the grave, but by the grace of God, you know it. I know I do. Men and women are ashamed. They hid from one another and they hid from God. And men and women are at odds as a consequence of the fall. Women desire the place of their husband in competition and husbands will rule over their wives. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames blames the snake. And from Genesis 3 forward, the Bible is then filled with commands concerning sexual conduct. Now that human beings are sinners, we want to do all kinds of things with our bodies. 
We were made to unite with one who is opposite us and we want to unite our bodies to all kinds of things that are like us and not even human. For example, Leviticus 18, 20 through 23. God commands his people, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with an animal so to make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. What does Leviticus 18, 20 through 23 teach us? That east of Eden, men and women don't always want to get together in one flesh unions. We settle for these crazy alternatives. Neighbors' wives, someone like them, a male with a male, someone with an animal. Departures from God's creation design are perversions. They're perversions. You use the word pervert. Maybe we'd reserve that word for the really ridiculous. We're all perverts in this room. Things that go on in our minds, the things that we desire, we're just born perverted. We're born uh, twisted. Our desires are wrapped around the wrong things. They go the wrong places. Perversion. And perversions are abominations because they deny the greatness and the goodness of God. Of course, when Jesus says that lust in our hearts is adultery in our hearts, we recognize that we are perverts ourselves, as I've said. We're all sexually wired, even if some of us are not, sexually weird, even if some of us are not as eccentric as others. Some of our weirdnesses are so common, we just feel like our weirdnesses are normal. Our weirdnesses are weird. There was no lust in the garden. Adam didn't want another woman until sin. Then there are a few key New Testament texts, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We read this at the beginning as I prayed. And the list continued to include men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's word here is the word he made up. He needed a word to mirror the meaning of the word in Leviticus 18. Rabbis use the Hebrew word to say lying with a man. Paul is just saying this with his own words. He's reinforcing the sin perspective of Leviticus. And what does this text in 1 Corinthians 6 teach us? That those who practice unrighteousness, which includes homosexuality, do not go to heaven, but they go to hell. Now, if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll read a good portion of this chapter together. Romans chapter 1 gives us what is the most significant and theologically insightful, paradigmatic uh, texts in all the Bible. Romans chapter 1, and I'll start reading in verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those which are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not feel fit to see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all murder, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, uh, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, in- inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die, they don't only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's Romans 1. So what does Romans 1, 18 through 26 teach us? That God made the world so that certain things would be clear. About himself would be clear. And it teaches us that in sin, humans reject the obvious. It teaches related to our subject, that homosexuality is a particularly vivid portrayal of the reversal of human allegiance from God to the creation, from God to self. And sexual immorality is an evidence of God's wrath. The wrath of God is revealed. God gave them up. The worst thing that can happen to you or me is for us to find ourselves in our sin unbothered by God and our conscience by his people left to do what we want and God leaves us to do what we want and it's a form of judgment not freedom but but death it's a passive form of judgment and we learn that sin is bad and that the approval of sin is really bad so it's one thing to commit a sin it's another thing to say that was perfectly all right Maybe it's even another thing to say, that was beautiful. Well, if these were our only scriptures, we might be hopeless, wouldn't we? But we sure aren't, we sure aren't hopeless. The third plot movement of scripture is redemption. Redemption. I'd like to revisit a few of the verses that I've read so far, but adding a little context. A verse tucked in between the verses I read or a verse or two on either side. So in Genesis 3.15, God promised death for sin, but listen to what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. It's a hint, she's gonna have kids. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There'll be a battle and he'll win. Adam named his wife Eve, means mother of the living. He's hoping in the promise of God already. There will be death, but there will also be life. And God makes clothes for them, even as he sends them out of the garden with hope, even on this hard day. There's promise all over the book of Leviticus. All you have to do is back up far enough. The whole book of Leviticus is about God providing a way for humankind to come to him. And it prepares us to meet Jesus Christ, who comes as our great high priest, who offers the sacrifice of himself for our sins and covers them all. So any command in Leviticus for which there's a sacrifice prepared for, Jesus covers with his blood. The message of Leviticus is one ultimately of hope. And there's cleansing in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Remember how those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God? In verse 11 he says, and such were some of you. One of the best lines in the Bible. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Good news, the gospel right there. The most important verse on homosexuality in the Bible, right there in 1 Corinthians 6, don't miss it. And there is good news of powerful salvation, even in Romans 1, that text we just read, 16 through 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says before he unpacks sin, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And only a few chapters later, after Paul has spent several chapters unpacking just how bad we all are, we have one of the most beautiful and bursting and glorious paragraphs ever written in the history of the universe about God's grace to sinners. We can't miss that in any text about any sin we would ever talk about. 
So what do we learn from these passages? That God judges sinners, sure enough. And he's just to, but he saves sinners. And he sets his love on some who practice homosexuality. And he does so through Jesus Christ. Fred Phelps was wrong and his religion is a satanic hijacking of the words church and Bible and the names God and Jesus for the misleading of many. We also learn that we can say we are dead wrong in sin and have confidence in eternal life in the same breath. We can say I'm all black but I am cleansed. I actually wear the righteous robes of Christ. I am whiter than snow. We can say that someone else is dead wrong in sin and dead in sin and offer them eternal life in the same breath. For the Christian, because of the gospel and no other religion or person in the universe has this, we can be totally honest about how ridiculous and weird and twisted we are and how everyone else is. And at the very same time, praise God for the forgiveness of sins and offer it freely to the world. So calling something sin is no contradiction to love, but a means of love. And this is not a point understood, really, in any measure in our day. And of course, the last plot movement in the Bible, the new creation. We started out in Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll end this little survey of the Bible at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. Listen to this beautiful description. A highly symbolic description, a clutter of images, all meant to show us the perfection of that day to come and our union with God. When John says he saw new heavens and a new earth, the first one and the, the, had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the place of God, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I look forward to some of the former things passing away. Verse 5, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, to John, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of living water without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithful, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So heaven is a perfect union with God. You know, the union we were made and longed to have with with another in this life is just a flicker of, uh, of what we were meant to have with God. Marriage itself is a picture of that union. Heaven is filled with only good things. Pain, crying, mourning are gone. God is wiping our tears with his finger. And so are the wicked. And, and all things are new. And there's even a spring of living water there. And it doesn't cost anything. God satisfies our thirsts. Whatever longings you have that are unsatisfied in this life, whatever sadnesses, whatever hurts, whatever losses, there's a spring of living water in heaven. And really it's just an extension of God's presence with us as we're united to him. And lastly, we learn that there's a direction and an end to history. We hear a lot about the right and the wrong side of history and progress and where things are going. There is an end to history. And the Bible gives it to us. And it's the new heavens and the new earth or the second death in the lake of fire and sulfur. So that's a survey of the Bible. And from it we get a sexual ethic. There's more to say, but those are the main texts. 
We don't want to just tool around with a single text and a word and turn it over and figure out if it really means what it looks like it means. From this, from this altitude looking at the Bible, moving down, looking at verses and up again, it should be patently clear that God's design for human beings is marriage between a man and a woman um, because he's embedded that a particular design in his creation and he's put, put a particular need in our hearts. So we'll transition to the second half of this talk. We'll just call it questions. Every each of these talks, I'll have a second half called questions. We're going to look at a number of questions. Questions and objections are always a catalyst for more clear thinking, finer distinctions, deeper conviction in what we believe. So we're going to go after a few. I hope the answers are satisfying. I, I hope they're biblical. I hope they're faithful to God. These are questions about what the Bible says and what the Bible means. Objections that you might hear, maybe objections that you have as someone who came today, maybe unsettled on what the Bible says. The most important thing we can do today is to explore this and to settle this, because if the Bible is not clear on this, then uh, much of the rest of the morning is, uh, you can let it go. So we need to settle what God has said and be clear there for ourselves and for those whom we lead and love. Question number one. What about Leviticus? You ever heard this one? What about Leviticus? Leviticus gives us commands for farming and like shellfish and clothing too, but we don't follow those. Aren't we being selective in singling out homosexual sin? That's a good question. Here's how I'll answer each of these. I'll state an assumption under the question, then I'll give you a short answer, like a sentence or two. And then I'll just develop it a little bit in the space of a paragraph. All right, so the assumption all the commands in Leviticus have the same purpose. And if they do, then we are being selective. The short answer is, well, that would be a problem if the commands in Leviticus all had the same purpose. Long answer, God's commands in Leviticus are for the nation of Israel, and they had different purposes. Some were intended to remind the people that they were different from the nations and they belonged to the Lord, so that at every meal and in every change of clothes, they would be reminded that they were his. Similar, perhaps, to... Family-specific traditions or patterns in your own home. There isn't a perfect parallel here. But there are reminders embedded within our own life experience that tie us and remind us to who we are. And Israel had some of these. They're distinguishing. But some commands were clearly tied to the nature of God and the world that he made, such as commands concerning murder or theft or sexual immorality. And obedience here as well was a sign that they belonged to the Lord. Be holy as I am holy. As it is, Leviticus carries over to the Christian in, a, in, a, in a, a way that's different than it did to the Israelite who would have first received these words as Jesus came and fulfilled all of the commands of the Old Testament and lived a righteous life. Took the curse that was owed to anyone who would disobey any command in Leviticus and offered a sacrifice that supersedes and eclipses all of the sacrifices of Leviticus. We have to interpret Leviticus the right way. There isn't a direct line from Leviticus to us, but through Christ to us. So what about Paul then? What about Paul? Wasn't Paul talking about certain types of homosexual sex, like perhaps prostitution or rape of slaves and children, but not committed same-sex relationships? I mean, really, haven't we matured in this and come to understand there are certain types of committed relationships that he wouldn't have known about back then? And there was such things as temple prostitution and the abuse of slaves. The assumption is that Paul was not aware of committed and consensual homosexual relationships. And the short answer is, well, if that's the case, why did Paul mention female homosexuality? I'll swing back around to that in a minute. Long answer. Some say Paul was unaware of homosexual orientation. That is an enduring attraction to men and a desire for men, if you will, for man on man or woman on woman. And that committed same-sex relationships didn't exist in this way. For example, Paul speaks about God giving them over to homosexuality, but many homosexuals don't remember not being homosexuals. Justin Lee in his book that I mentioned, he does this. He says, but see, I don't remember before I was given over, so it goes back farther than that. The problem with that is that this reading of the text is not speaking of any one individual's journey, that is Romans 1, but the story of humankind. And as it is, the writings and the art of the day 
there is actually ample evidence of plenty of long-term homosexual relationships consensual going on. I'm not going to put it on the screen, but there are pictures of two guys, you know, opening up the robe and fondling each other and like beards are definitely dudes, are definitely enjoying this, they're looking at each other's eyes and they're erect. Okay, there's pictures of this stuff, of consensual. There, there's literature that describes long-term, lifelong uh, relationships between men. This book, I mentioned this long ago by Robert Gagnon, he just piles on the evidence. You know, people outside of circles where people want to embrace homosexuality and like keep the Bible too, uh, like s- scholars of the first century say, I don't know what you guys are doing. I mean, I'm pro-homosexuality, but I don't need the Bible to be pro-homosexuality. I'm just going to say that uh, there's plenty of it going on, and Paul is not talking about some specific kind of aberrant uh, homosexual sex. He's talking about what we're talking about. Now, Gagnon piles all this on. It's, it's, it's really clear in my mind. Second, some, some say Paul is speaking of same gender sex as being wrong for those for whom same sex attraction is unnatural. So, so follow me here. Some say in Romans 1, it's unnatural and wrong for a man who is naturally heterosexual to have sex with a man. But the text doesn't say anything about the man for whom the man who is naturally attracted to men. For him, heterosexual sex would be wrong. Follow that objection? And we see Romans 1 is an echo of the creation account. You can take the words in Romans 1, image, creation, you can just take these words, line them up, the, the backdrop for Romans 1 is clearly the creation account. And Romans 1 is clearly indicating a reversal of God's created order. An exchange of his glory for the glory of things. A little bit of Adam in that and a, and a consequent inversion and upside downness found in every facet of human life pictured visibly uh, in homosexual sex. And some still, still suggest that Paul was referring here to adult abuse of boys or temple prostitution or abuse of slaves. But that's not what it says. It speaks of men inflamed with desire for one another. That's mutual, not coercive or abusive. Ultimately, the mention of male, female on female sex addresses all of these arguments. It really is all that needs to be said. There's no record of female abuse of slaves or young girls or female on female in temples. In Paul's day, some would have accepted male homosexuality, like some would have accepted it. No one would have accepted female on female homosexuality. It was unthinkable. And there's no record of that being acceptable in any case. For Paul to mention that is for him to be speaking about homosexuality, same gender on same gender, uh, as a category. So Romans 1 is just clear. Here's a quote from a Lewis Crompton who published a huge work on the subject. I was going to buy this actually. Uh, so I got a lot of books for the, the, bought a bunch of books for this thing. It was too expensive and it was too thick. I thought it's too thick um, and, and it's too expensive. So it's a big old book, Harvard University Press. And then I find it quoted all over the place and so I think I've got what I need. So I found this quote in another book quoting him. Huge work on the very same subject. He's very pro-homosexual and through the whole book, by the way, he doesn't buy these arguments either. He says, according to one interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at a, at a bona fide homosexuals and committed relationships, but a reading, however, this reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. In short, Paul is talking about good old-fashioned homosexuality and Romans 1 settles the matter. I hope it's clear to you that Paul is objecting to homosexual, homosexuality as we know it. All right, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Why didn't Jesus say anything about homosexuality? The assumption is that for Jesus to communicate a comprehensive sexual ethic requires him to speak to every perversion. A short answer is, do you suppose that Jesus was for adult incest? That's all you need to say. I hope, I hope that's satisfying enough to you even if you're, if you're struggling with this. 
Long answer, Jesus didn't speak about homosexuality because it, it was a given. You don't have to tell your teenager that mom is off limits for prom, right? And the teenager's not gonna say to his friend, you know, dad didn't say anything about mom. Do you think dad's out of his mind? Because I asked him who I could, you know, options, and she was standing right there. It's like he'd had the opportunity, right? It's just insane. Why? Because they're the same family, too much of the sameness. That's the principle in, in the Bible with, with regard to sexual complementarity within the same bloodline or the same family. There's too much sameness, complementarity, and it is expressed not only just biologically, but in other ways as well. So incest is excluded. When Jesus spoke about specific sexual sins, when he did, he did so to people who were challenging those specific sins and no one would challenge homosexuality. When he did speak, he closed loopholes on sins that were less egregious than sins like incest or homosexuality. When he addressed divorce, he based his arguments in Genesis 1 and 2 on the two-ness of the sexes. But if we're going to be good Bible readers, we need to admit that Jesus did speak directly about homosexuality in an important biblical theological sense through his spirit whom he promised to send to teach all things to his disciples that he promised in John chapter 16. Whatever the spirit says, Jesus says. Question then, for the sake of unity, can't we all just agree to disagree? So I've got this view right and some other people have a different view. Can't we all just agree to disagree? There are a number of things we do this on and, and, and should. You know, within our own church, there are, there are a number of positions taken on a number of issues. And in town, we have wonderful partnerships with churches that land in different places on issues like baptism, for example. The assumption is that this is in the same category as things like baptism or perhaps the specifics of the end times. The short answer is, that, is to ask a question, is there any example in scripture to show that sexual ethics are not a reason for division? Is there any scenario in scripture where, well, you know, that's all right. Live peaceably among one another. Long answer. It's a big fat deal. It's as big as people, repentance, and eternity. Paul addressed the theme of unity time and again in his letter to the Corinthians, and yet at two points in his letter, he indicates the strongest of consequences for being on the wrong side of an issue. The first is what? End of the book. I won't interact too much, but resurrection, right? You don't believe Jesus raised from the dead? You've lost Christianity. The second one, 1 Corinthians 5 through 7. In this context, a man is his father's wife. It's incest. The community is proud. This is their position on it. They're proud in thinking that this is not only okay, but good. So Paul says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. Deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. They have one view on incest and Paul has another. Paul is saying, mourn like a funeral and send that man out to be delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Basically, his rejoicing in and continuing in this sin in this kind of a public way is enough for Paul to know this man is condemned to hell. Now, now exclude him from, from, uh, from uh, fellowship. and It may be, in the, as Bible as the Bible goes and these things goes, it may be that the Lord would deliver him. But mourn is the response. Cry like a funeral. You're at a funeral. And to get a sense of the seriousness here, consider that for a Christian, sexual sin is worse than, worse than sexual sin for an unbeliever because it involves Jesus in the act. Speaking of prostitution, Paul writes, shall I then take a member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So can we agree to disagree? Not on this one. Not on this one, folks. Question. Doesn't disagreement mean that the Bible isn't clear, though? Doesn't disagreement mean the Bible isn't clear? We always disagree on things. This is the assumption. We always disagree on things because the Bible isn't sufficiently clear. Short answer, in this case, I think that people are unclear. Long answer. Christians will disagree on a number of things. We're finite, we're fallen, and we have the freedom, even responsibility before God to read and interpret the scripture. But our differences can be better explained by a difference in authority in this case and in some cases. So here's the Bible's order of authority. Revelation, 
then let's say reason or science, what we pick up from living in this world, and then experience. The modern order of authority would have been reason or science, and then experience, and then revelation. And the postmodern order of authority is experience, interprets science and reason, interprets revelation. I think that is exactly what's going on here. If you come to the Bible committed to the idea that the desires you find in yourself are good, you're going to come out the other side committed and you'd have found a way for the Bible to say it. If experience is your ultimate authority. Sometimes our differences can be explained. Not in that we're both submitted to the same authority and there's just something a little foggy here. God's providence, he's left it that way. Sometimes we're coming to the scriptures committed to a viewpoint already. Question, are all sins equal? Isn't homosexual sin just as bad as any other sin? The assumption here is that homosexual sin has been unfairly singled out among other sins. The short answer is to say, ask, is anyone insisting that your sins are not only perfectly okay, but should be celebrated by all decent people? That's really what's unique here. I mean, we weren't talking about homosexuality a whole lot 30 years ago because the buzz around us wasn't celebrate, celebrate, celebrate. So now we're trying to think about it and engage it and be persuasive and we're going to work. Long answer is that this response has partially a good root. We don't want to make people feel bad or ashamed. There may be some compassion there. Or at least we don't want them to feel like they are out of God's reach of grace. Like I'm a better human being than you because of your sins. And to the person who finds these same-sex desires in themselves, I'd want you to know that you are not alone. Not only are there others who struggle with this, who would call themselves Christian. I say struggle is different than embracing a homosexual identity. We'll get to that. But in Adam, all of us are dead in sin. And that's all there is to it. None of us are more deserving of God's favor than anyone else. And if you feel hopeless to conquer your desires or achieve acceptance before God, we should all feel that way. All sin condemns us to hell and we are all sinking in the same boat. But to address the question of homosexual sin, uh, we need to ask, are we prepared to say that one man's temper toward his children this morning is, is an offensive immoral is, is an offense of moral equivalence to Hitler's destruction of the European Jews. It's not to draw a parallel here, it's to make the point with a dramatic illustration to show that we recognize degrees of seriousness with respect to sin. Biblically speaking, Israel's national principle of justice, eye for an eye, prescribes punishments that match crimes. They're not just different in kind, but in scale. There is true, there are true, This is true of sexual offenses as well. God allowed for divorce as an accommodation to human sin for a time in specific circumstance, but he hates divorce. But there are no sins, no exceptions for homosexuality anywhere. Biblically speaking, homosexual sin is simply more egregious than many other sins. Romans 1, Paul didn't pick homosexual sin out of a hat. There's a reason he spent several verses on it in particular. It's a particularly vivid picture of the upside downness of the human condition which is common to all of us, even if that's not our specific sin. So let's all remember the words of the Apostle Paul, who did not struggle with the same-sex attraction, and yet said, 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So no matter what your sin, that statement is deserving of full acceptance because it is fully true. We don't do anyone a favor by saying, the sin is not a big deal. I have sin too. I mean, I do this and I do this. We don't need to pull the weight off anyone, ourselves or or anyone for any sin, uh, by comparing it to lighter sins or flattening things out. We just say we're all a wreck. We're in a sinking ship. We're born in Adam, condemned to hell. Some sins are more egregious than others in this world. We all need the same Savior in Jesus. And Paul himself was a murderer of Christians and could say, I'm the foremost of sinners. With him I say the same. There's not a contradiction there. Because of the gospel, there's no problem with saying some sins are worse than others and all sins deserve hell. And no sin is a match for God's grace in Christ's blood. He can cover it all. Right? We can do that. 
Next question, aren't people born gay? Aren't people born gay? And if so, how can we reject how God made them? A couple assumptions tucked away in this one. First, that we know this. Second, that it makes a difference. And third, that we're supposed to embrace and act on our desires that we're born with. All those assumptions are underneath that question. The short answer is to ask, are all desires we're born with good for that reason? Because we were born with them. They need to be validated. Long answer In the first place, this is a widely held assumption that is not supported by the science. Simple twin studies would bear it out. Identical twins. One ends up a homosexual, one doesn't. I mean, the pattern doesn't follow. There's other studies as well. The science doesn't bear it out. There may be a genetic component that positions some for same-sex attraction in a way Uh, It makes them more vulnerable to that than others, but if there is, it's not determinative. And even if it were somehow discovered that homosexual desire was genetically determined and fixed, this would actually not surprise Christians. We believe the fall affects every part of our being, even our genes, and that we're born as sinners with all kinds of desires that we shouldn't have. Sin is transmitted biologically, and we're born slaves to sin. We have kind of a crazy view of the human problem in a way, right? We say, I'm born this way, right? I'm born this way. I'm born wanting to have sex with thousands of women before I die. Uh, I'm born, I'm born uh, wanting to lie. I'm born wanting to cheat, wanting to steal. I'm born coveting. Doesn't mean I'm not culpable. It does not mean those are valid, valid desires. We're born trading the truth of God for a lie because we're an Adam. For many of us, for as long as we can remember, we would prefer to have not the desires we find in ourselves, but we do. We're perverted. Also, consider that we pay no regard to a person's desire, inborn desire, when it comes to their marital, other marital norms, such as age differences or blood relatedness and number of partners in marriage. It doesn't very much matter how someone feels about someone else. If they don't meet the proper criteria, it doesn't work. And there's really no question about it. And this is how it used to be with same sex relationships. That was a disqualifier for marriage as we conceived of marriage, but it's changing. Christians do not believe that any of us should have the right to fulfill an inborn urge. And to say that someone has that right is actually a a form of judgment on them and a form of hate. We should say you're not bound by your desires. You are not stuck in your desires. And offer them the gospel. Indeed, the call of Christianity is to take up our crosses, to die to ourselves, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And Jesus says, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Paul cries out, who can save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, right? This is the Christian way. This is what we offer. Yeah, but what about homosexual animals, you say? That's the next question. That's not a bad question. Assumption is that animal instincts prove that people can be born homosexuals. And the short answer is, what about them? Are you prepared to use other animal instincts and behavior as a ground for human morality? Animals do all kinds of things, folks. Uh, You know, man and woman get together, woman eats the guy. Woman has her, you know, her babies, she eats the babies. Uh, This is how it is, and no one's judging the animals. No one's trying to figure out how to crack this and how this happened. It's just, you know, whatever. I don't know that God is judging them. They're not made in his image. They're not morally accountable creatures. That's what makes us special. We have revelation out here and in here. So animals are no, uh, animals, animals are no gauge. Uh, early 2000s, Antango Makes Three came out. Does anyone remember the book, Antango Makes Three? Has anyone heard of this? King and King? Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, <laughs> okay. So... Uh, what, it should have been around 2000, 2005. Christy and I were traveling through Illinois and spent some time with my aunt and uncle and we watched March of the Penguins. Who's watched March of the Penguins? All right. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. These penguins get together, make an egg, they cover the thing. Isn't it true like if she moves her foot or something, the thing cracks and it's all over it. You know, they find each other after months and you watch them in the snow. It's just absolutely insane. All right, so a week later, I learn about the book Entangle Makes Three. Here's what the book Entangle Makes Three is. At the New York Zoo, there were two, two male penguins. Uh, I think the mother of uh, an egg died or something, so there's an egg there. 
the two, the two male penguins take in the egg and like parent the egg. The reason it's so fascinating hit the news and there's a book made of it because it's a total anomaly, but it, it validated something within the culture like luck. Uh, homosexual uh, desires, attraction, instincts are embedded within animals and so that's validating. There's a children's book and Tango makes three. Two male penguins adopt the, the egg and raise the child penguin. And I just remember thinking, well, that works in the New York Zoo. I just got done watching March of the Penguins. Um, Males and females getting together is the only way this thing works. There's some some funny contradictions there. So homosexual animals, I don't buy it. And Tango makes three. Uh, Don't buy it. Last question. So what then is God's view of homosexual marriage? You know, some of my, I'm animated because I care about these things and, and may even... Be lighthearted in some ways, but I'm not unserious about any of this. So I hope that my, my the spirit here is, is right. What then is God's view of homosexual marriage? A very serious question. And really a life-shaping, changing question for some people, maybe in this room. What to make of this? Some summary statements. It's not possible. It's a pretend thing. So to, to use an illustration that um, I would not mean to be to come off as insulting or, or trivial in any way, uh, if you take a, a, a nut and a bolt, right, those are meant to go together, what do you do with a nut and a bolt? You marry a nut and a bolt, right? Can you marry a nut and a nut? Can you marry a bolt and a bolt? This is what Christians mean. We're not just trying to to keep something from somebody. We're not trying to keep something to ourselves and not share it with those who would identify as gay. We actually don't believe it's possible. And we believe that to say it's possible is to adopt an entirely different meaning of the word altogether. So it's not possible. Homosexual marriage is a distortion of the human realities of gender, marriage, and sexuality rooted in the distortion of reality concerning God. And therefore, it's tragic and sad. And the proposal for homosexual marriage is a proposal for the institutionalization of shame. So think about this. They were were naked and not ashamed. Then they hid themselves. All kinds of things happen behind fig leaves, don't they, in our life. We do them in the dark. We think them in the dark. Homosexual sex is one of those things. And the only way out, the only fix in the mind of some, because it's such an ensnaring and enslaving reality, is to run into it headlong and to embrace it. And the only option to go to bed at night, if you're going to do that, is to say it's good. And so the proposal for homosexual marriage, which is the celebration and the affirmation of that kind of a union, is the institutionalization of shame. And finally, homosexual marriage is a result of God's passive judgment on those who would engage of and improve homosexuality. So we'll land where we started this this session and saying this is a hot issue. It is. I hope you've gotten some clarity on what the Bible says. It's a consequential issue. It's also a deeply personal issue. I hope that you have had people in mind. I hope that you're a little better to speak with them about the scriptures and to think about it biblically, theologically, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. It's a question for all of us, a universal issue. It's an often fumbled issue. Let's not fumble this. People are too important. It's a genuinely confusing issue, and I hope we're getting clarity. And it's a gospel issue, and I hope we'll be more faithful.